Amen, amen. You may be seated. So good to be in the house of the Lord. I, you know, I, I thought a few years back, I was thinking, doing a little reading about World War II and all of that. And uh, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese were looking to strike kind of a decisive blow in the, in the Pacific. And uh, they were trying to figure out what the best thing to do. And Yamamoto thought it was a little too risky to try Hawaii again. And so he set his sights on a little island called Midway. Midway wasn't really that important to the Japanese, but to the Americans it was because they set it up as a fueling station and it would extend the reach of the fleet and submarines and a staging point for bombers and so forth. And the Japanese understood how important it was to the Americans. Fortunately, the Americans decoded the Japanese communications and they intercepted the plans and instead of suffering a terrible defeat, they won a great victory, and it wound up being a turning point in the battle for the Pacific in World War II. And I started thinking about how much like Midway Wednesday night is. It's just situated, just a small little outcropping halfway between Sundays. And some people look at it and think it may not be very significant at all. But actually, it is a place where we come together, we fellowship with each other, but we also hear the voice of the Lord we feel his presence, we gain strength from his word, we refuel. It extends our reach. Sometimes Sunday to Sunday may seem too far, but if we can just make it to Wednesday night, then we can get enough strength to make it on to Sunday. And I think sometimes the enemy may look at Sunday and say, they're committed to Sunday and it's too fortified and there's no point in making an attack on Sunday. But if I can keep them from Wednesday night, I can weaken them for Sunday. And... So I think the cry for us is we've got to be careful not to lose the battle of Midway. This is a very important time together. And I'm very grateful for this opportunity um, to be with you and to share the presence of the Lord together. It strengthens us when we come together. And uh, the Lord created us to fellowship with each other. Isolation is not natural and it's not normal for us. Um, so... Fellowship together is a key part of it, but of course also the presence of the Lord, the Word of God, all of these things are so important to our lives. We are wrapping up the elements, sessions, discipleship lessons that we have been going through over the past few months, actually. And uh, this week and next week will be our last two lessons um, in this. And the section that we're in now is dealing with lifestyle issues. And you, you probably remember we spent several weeks talking about doctrine and various things, but that doctrine really needs to play itself out in our lives. There needs to be a practical impact. And uh, so tonight, our topic is the fruit of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, it gets real practical, right? This is where the rubber really meets the road. And um, I, I almost wish... Brother Hughes was up here because he could finish what he started a couple of months ago on Sunday night about the benefits of the fruit of the Spirit, of, of singing and being happy and, and joyful and all of these things. They have very practical benefits in our lives. I want us to start, I want to go to Galatians chapter 5. That's where these fruit are, or this fruit is, uh, the various aspects of this fruit are enumerated. But I want to give you a little bit of context because I think this is important. And I, I want us to go back to verse 16. And I want to pick up there and start reading. Because you have to remember what the book of Galatians, first of all, was the Apostle Paul striking back really at heresy. Uh, the churches in Galatia, and Galatia was a region, and Paul had founded really the church in that region. And when he left, there were others that came in behind and began to teach things that were contrary to what Paul had taught them. And what it boiled down to was that they needed to follow the Old Testament law in order to be saved. And Paul, you can read, you can read through Galatians and you can see this. 
He, he just straight asks them, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? In other words, when you receive the Holy Ghost, God gave you the Holy Ghost. You were filled with his spirit. You weren't doing any of those things. So is there a need for you to, to go back and pick up these former things that were for another time and another era? Pick those things up. Are you going to be made complete or perfect by the works of the flesh? And this really is the theme of Galatians, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect in the flesh? And so notice what he says here, beginning in verse 16 of chapter 5. He says, this I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So very clearly, I mean, we understand this. The spirit and the flesh are contrary to the other. They fight against each other. The flesh, as you know, is the way that the scripture kind of refers to our human nature. It is our natural nature, the one that we come into this world with. And the flesh refers to, it's just kind of a nice shorthand way because we understand the flesh feels pain. (laughs) The flesh feels hunger. It feels discomfort. It has all of these various motivations. And it becomes a symbol of the totality of our humanity and our human nature. Paul says, of course, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit is contrary to the flesh. I know that's right. There are things that the Spirit would cause us to do that are contrary to our flesh. And we discover that we have, really, we kind of have these two natures. We're in this in-between time when the Lord has put his Spirit inside of us, but we have not completely put off our humanity just yet. Now, there is coming a day, 1 John chapter 3, we will see him as he is. We will be like him. We will put off the desires of this old body and this humanity. We'll receive a glorified body, and we will be made perfect, and there will be no desire for sin. But until that time, there is this tension that fights in our lives, and it's a constant struggle. It is a constant tension. And if you think that just because you received the Holy Ghost that you're not going to struggle with sin anymore or that you're going to get to some point in your life where you're not going to struggle with sin anymore, you're setting yourself up for great disappointment, frustration, all sorts of things. There may be points in your life when you grow past certain sins, but then the sins just become a little more subtle and maybe a little harder to identify. And I think we'll see that as we work our way through this. So he says, verse 17, he expresses it a little more clearly. The flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. There are two sets of desires at work in us. And they are struggling against each other. These are contrary the one to the other. So that you cannot do the things that you would. Now there's a companion passage to this, Romans chapter 7. Paul talks about this, and he says, around verse 15, the good that I would do, the the good things that I want to do, I don't do those things. But the things that I would not, the things that I wish not to do, those are the things that I do. I don't know about you, but that verse resonates with me. There is a a struggle, and there is a... Uh, a desire to do what is right, but there are points in our lives when we find it difficult, even though we want to. Our nature is so strong, sometimes it overcomes our will. And this speaks to the complexity, I guess, of our humanity. You know, holiness is not about stubbornness. It's not about a will to do right. It is not about just setting our eye on something and not being satisfied with anything less. Yes, there is an element of persistence in holiness that is required from us. But the truth is, our underlying nature is so strong that regardless of our will, we don't have the ability to be holy. I suppose if we did, we wouldn't have needed Calvary. There would be some who could be saved by the sheer strength of their will, and the rest of us would just be left out in the cold. 
But we know that that's not the case. All have sinned, come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. We, we understand the, the constantness of humanity through all of us. Um, so this is what Paul is saying here. The spirit and the flesh are contrary, the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. He's talking about the fact there is a law, and he talks about this, the law of sin and death that works in our flesh. Namely, if we, the wages of sin is death. If we commit sin, we violate the will of God. Then the result of that, the end result of that, we're cut off from the source of life and we die. But if we are led by the Spirit, we are subject to a higher law. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like an airplane in the sense that the law of gravity does not cease to apply to an airplane when it takes off and it's in the sky. It's just taking advantage of another law that is able to overcome the law of gravity. And that law has to do with the physics of how air flows over the wing and it creates a lift and it actually lifts that. I don't know if you, I've stood at the window at the airport before and looked and said, I'm going to get in that big thing and it's actually going to get off the ground and it's going to carry me however many thousand miles and over water and it's not going to come down. I mean, I'm trusting that there is a higher law that is in play because I have a lot of experience with the law of gravity. I have a lot of experience that things fall and they drop and fall out of the sky and all sorts of things. And I'm trusting that there is another law that will allow me, at least temporarily in that airplane, to overcome the law of gravity. And Paul is talking here about the fact that when we are led by the Spirit, it's not our will that's overcoming our nature, but we're actually being held by a higher law than the law of sin and death that operates in our bodies. So he says, if you be led of the Spirit. And uh, then he immediately goes into this passage about the works of the flesh. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to notice. First of all, the works of the flesh. It's interesting to me that Paul calls these works. In other words, the it, it is in a measure, it's, it's a fruit. It's a manifestation of your nature, of your flesh. And he says the works of the flesh are manifest, or they are made clear, and they are these. Now, I don't know that this is necessarily an exhaustive list, but, but he comes up with a pretty good list here. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. So if we just take these first few and think about, as we work our way through this list, think about how natural some of these things come to us as humans. You know, you don't ever have to teach your kids to lie. They just figure it out on their own because it's part of the nature. It's part of this fallen humanity that we live with. You have to teach them that's not appropriate and will not be tolerated. And so many of these other things, they just come so natural and they manifest themselves or they make themselves clear. It's interesting that he starts off with one that breaks the commandments. He's talking really here about sexual immorality, adultery, the breaking of the marriage vow, and then fornication. He just kind of throws that one in there because it covers the whole gamut of whatever. You can look in that word and see everything that is there. He's really covering the whole gamut of sexual immorality and impropriety. And then uncleanness, really, it's a pretty good translation. It just it has to do, again, with... Uh, that area of life and just being uh, unclean or dirty. Um, and so, and then lasciviousness is another word for that is licentiousness, or really it just means living life without any boundaries, just doing whatever comes naturally, whatever, um, whatever makes, uh, whatever makes you happy, wild and unruly and unrestrained. And as we read through this list, I want you to notice First of all, how natural this is to humanity. Now, you, I know we're all cleaned up and we're all nice and proper, and so so many of these things don't apply to us. I, I'm thankful that they don't. But if you look around in the world around us, this is what you see multiplied in our world. And it used to be, not that long ago, 
that it was, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to me about cities and population centers because it seems like even back in Bible times, in the cities is where the immorality thrived. You get more people together, they embolden each other to act up and to misbehave and to act according uh, against the law of God. And they are strengthened and encouraged by each other and by being close together. And it's been that way for a long time. And you can look even in our own country, you see that the the uh, what we would call evil and more decadent places are population centers. Now, two things have happened to smooth that out and to spread it evenly across our whole landscape. First of all came television so that there was a view into whatever world that the world wanted to portray to us that could be pumped into our living room. We might live in Podunk Holler, but we could see what was, you know, we could see uh, depictions of life in Chicago or New York or wherever. And there was a certain attraction to that. But if that was effective, what has been even more effective is the internet, social media, and that whole landscape. And that's not necessarily the point tonight, other than to say that is a way in which um, evil has been spread so that it is even. You can't find pockets hardly anymore where there's not wickedness abounding. And the reason is because the human spirit is unrestrained. The unregenerate man is unrestrained. If you have not been filled with the spirit, you're fighting a losing battle. Even if you have a concept of what righteousness is and you're trying to live that way, your own humanity is going to get in your way. And then when all of humanity is brought close together, that just gets magnified and strengthened. And that's what we see as we read through this list. The works of the flesh, these are all things that are done to satisfy the desires of our humanity They are efforts that are brought about by our humanity to satisfy ourselves and uh, and to bring about instant gratification. No no delay in that gratification. And so Paul says these are the works of the flesh. This is what the human spirit, unrestrained, this is what it will do. And he kind of covers that in this idea of lasciviousness or licentiousness. It is an unrestrained and an unruly lifestyle. Then... He takes on the next little section, idolatry, false religion, worshiping things other than the true and living God. And these that follow are similar, witchcraft, a, um, a serving of you know sorceries and all of this sort of thing. I mean, the, the essence of witchcraft is trying to get something for nothing when you think about it. And this is what, this is what Paul is saying here. There is a worship of... Uh, things that are not the true and living God, maybe even uh, material things in the broadest sense of the term. There are a lot of things in our world. We don't have so many idols that are set up that people bow down to explicitly, but our world is filled with idolatry because people spend their lives for things that don't matter. And so Paul's list goes on. Hatred, he's talking here about just having a character of hostility or uh, bearing grudges. And we see that, I mean, that is clearly the opposite of God. God is love, John said. And we see that the work of the flesh is really to lash out. And when we serve ourselves, the focus is on us and on my satisfaction and not on the satisfaction of someone else. So if I hurt someone else, at least I'm being satisfied. And that's really the essence of these, all of these works of the flesh, some of them um, emulations or jealousies, they begin to run rampant among people because we're jealous of each other. Um, wrath, uh, just a kind of another expression uh, of hatred, but it's uh, characterized by violence and, and uh, strife. You ever notice how people sometimes are, they seem to be sold out on drama? People get energized, and and I've seen people that they seem to just want to create drama. It's like it gives them energy, and so anytime there's any kind of strife, man, that's when they're at home. And I'm thinking, Lord have mercy, just let me go, let me be free, just 
free me from all of this sort of thing. Um, but the key element here through this whole list really is selfishness. And <clears throat> he talks here about heresies and uh, that kind of almost, it's false doctrines, um, doctrines of devils, he says in another place. So all of these things, man is looking for something to worship. But if I can worship an idol or I can create false doctrine, I can set something up where I can worship and still not submit anything of myself. I don't have to give anything up. I can create this religion where I'm in control, where I'm in charge, and I'm the one that's blessed, and I set the rules, and that characterizes, frankly, much of what we see in the world today. And he goes on, envyings, murders, that's pretty self-explanatory, drunkenness, revelings, he's talking about parties. Again, there's this image of being unrestrained. What we see in these verses, not to belabor the point, But what we see in these verses is the human spirit unrestrained. This is where things wind up when you can't tell yourself no and you follow after all the desires of your humanity and your flesh. And he says, I tell you, as I told you before, or I tell you, as I've also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the works of the flesh. You do these things. This is not the pathway to the kingdom of God. And then he immediately follows that up. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. So notice the contrast. First of all, if we follow the spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. The works of the flesh are all these things that are manifest expressions of our selfishness and our desires to satisfy and to comfort ourselves. But when he turns to the Spirit, he says the fruit, not the works. Notice that works of the flesh were plural, but when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, it's singular. The fruit of the Spirit is. It's not accidental. There is one fruit of the Spirit. And in fact, Paul is presenting this fruit of the Spirit as the antidote to all of those things that are the work of the fle- works of the flesh. When you were filled with the Spirit... Now your human flesh should no longer be unrestrained. And in fact, if you feed that new nature that you have been given, you should be able to overcome the works of the flesh. And rather than the works of the flesh being manifest or made obvious in your life, as you nurture the new nature that you have been given, you will in fact bear the fruit of the Spirit rather than manifesting the works of the flesh. Now, the challenge for us, of course, is that the easiest thing to do is for, or the easiest thing to try, not the easiest thing to do, but the easiest thing to try is for us to begin to try to manufacture the fruit of the Spirit on our own. Now, there certainly is an element or a participation of of our will and our mind that has to take place in bearing the fruit of the Spirit. But the real question for us as believers is what is the source? Where is this fruit of the Spirit coming from? Is it coming out of my desire to look righteous and to look holy in front of all my brothers and sisters? Or does it come as a result of the nature that God has put in me that my life now, rather than naturally bearing these works of the flesh, now I naturally, in quotes, start to bear the fruit of the Spirit. You think about this. Fruit in the... I don't think it's an accident that Paul uses fruit here. Because in in the natural world, this is a concept that we understand. We name trees based on the fruit that they bear. Now, if you're really sharp, you may be able to look at the leaves. You may be able to look at the bark. You may be able to look at the growth pattern and tell what a tree is without there being any fruit. But the real test is what is the fruit. Because I could come by and misdiagnose and say I have an apple tree, but when summer rolls around and there's oranges on that tree, nobody would believe me if I said that was an apple tree. I don't care what kind of analysis of the leaves and the bark and the growth pattern that I have, the nature of that tree is known by the fruit that it bears. And so it is with us. We are known by the fruit that we bear. 
Now, you have to remember, in the natural world, there is a delay between the time in which we are planted or when a tree is planted and when it actually bears fruit. And that varies according to the kind of fruit that is to be born. Citrus trees can bear within a couple years. Apple trees take sometimes up to five years. Cherries and other kinds of fruits may take as long as seven years before they begin to bear fruit. Now, I'm not saying, <laughs> I'm not giving you an excuse if you received the Spirit five years ago and you're still not bearing fruit. That's not, I'm not giving you an excuse on that. What I'm saying is that the fruit that you bear is an indication of spiritual maturity. This is how we gauge spiritual maturity is on the prevalence of spiritual fruit in our lives. We all understand when we come to the Lord and we repent and we receive the Spirit, we speak in tongues. But if you've been... Pastor may have to clean this up on Sunday, I don't know. If you've been here five years and you speak in tongues every Sunday, but you have a hateful attitude and you don't treat people right and you take advantage of people in business and you don't tell the truth when you file your tax returns... I mean, we are known by the fruit that we bear. Our, our speaking in tongues, our exercising certain spiritual gifts are not an indication of our maturity. What is an indication of maturity is how prevalent are these things that Paul lists here, these various facets of the singular fruit of the Spirit. That's interesting because we don't get to pick and choose. Paul didn't say... There's nine different fruit. Take the ones you like, throw the rest away. He said, no, there's one fruit, and there are facets of that one fruit. And if there are facets that are missing, that is an indication that the development of that fruit-bearing nature in our lives is not complete, and it's not mature, and we have not reached the point of real spiritual maturity. There is still room for us to grow. I think we could all read down the list and say honestly and sincerely, there are facets of that fruit of the Spirit that are not as prevalent in my life as they should be. This, if you feel like, if you ever feel like you've arrived, you can go to this passage and then go to 1 Corinthians 13 and you'll get a pretty good measure on where you are. And I don't think it is an accident that Paul begins the list. He said the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's really where it all starts is with love. And the rest of these that are in the list are expressions of that love. So it's important, and we've mentioned this before, I think it's important that we understand what that love really means. Love is a word that's very prevalent in our world today and has, you know, from the love revolution of the 60s all the way until now, the word love has been used for all sorts of different things from being applied to um, wicked lifestyles to pizza. We love a good pizza. I mean, what kind of, when, when the scripture says the fruit of the spirit is love, what does it mean? And there are different words in the new Testament that are translated love. We've mentioned this, and I'm sure you know that the word that's used here is agape love. It's a word that doesn't appear very much, if at all in Greek literature, but it is fills the pages of scripture because it is a description of, first of all, God's love for us. And then it is the ideal of our love for God and for each other. It is supposed to characterize our relationships. And one of the key elements of agape love is that the well-being of the object of affection is of primary importance. So if we have love as we're supposed to have love, those that we love, their well-being is most important. Now, the world says, if you love me, you'll be nice to me. You won't hurt my feelings. You won't ever say anything that upsets me. You will say whatever it takes to make my life easy and smooth. But let me ask you something. If you knew that a loved one had a disease, a dread disease that would take their life, But you also knew of a cure for that disease. 
And you might know, if you know that person well enough, that when I tell them what the cure is, they're not really going to like it. Would it be loving for you to tell them, you're perfectly fine, everything's going to be all right, it's going to be great, you're doing fine, there's no problem, everything's going to be all right. Would that really be loving? No, the loving thing to do would be to find a way to express to them their need of the cure that you know about that will take away the disease and will extend their life. Now, if you take that concept in the natural and you extend it to the the spiritual, if we know people who are living in sin and we don't find a way to tell them this is destructive, not only of your physical life, not only of your earthly life, but this is spiritually destructive for all of eternity, we are not acting in love toward that person. And it doesn't really have to be so dramatic. You can read 1 Corinthians 13, as I mentioned just a a few moments ago. The characteristics of love are laid out in that chapter very clearly for us. And they are convicting. Love doesn't seek its own. Love doesn't puff itself up. It doesn't build itself up. The, The emphasis is always on the subject. And this is God's expression of love to us that... While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He brought us the, the painful message that we were in direct rebellion and disobedience to God, but that he provided for us a way of escape and salvation. And this is the kind of love that becomes characteristic of the life of a real believer. And here's the thing about love that is contrary to our culture. If you're going to love someone, you have to give up your rights. Our world is focused on, I have a right to be treated a certain way. I have a right to be this. I have a right to be that. But if you're really going to love somebody, sometimes you have to give up your rights. And you have to reach for them to do what is best for them. I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, In heaven, there are no rights, there's only love. Now, you can imagine a world in which there is only glorified humanity. Nobody is self-seeking, but everybody is working in love, concerned about the well-being of each other. Wouldn't that be a great world where everybody was concerned about each other? See, I can live a selfish in a selfish world, a world characterized by selfishness, and I'm the only one that cares for me. But if I live in a world characterized by love, everybody cares about me. Everybody cares about my well-being. Everybody's looking out for me. And I don't bear that alone. I'm interested in the well-being of all of those that are around me. But it's clear this sort of love doesn't just come natural to us. This comes when we reach a level of maturity or we begin to mature in the Lord, and we get to that point where this love can characterize our lives. It's not an easy thing, and there are going to be times when people aggravate and situations aggravate, and we fall short. But this really should be the characteristic of our lives. And notice what he says immediately after that expression of love, there is joy. See, when we have, we have been given the eternal spirit of God, when we receive the Holy Ghost, that eternal spirit of God resides in us. And it, if we will allow it, it will give us an eternal perspective. And what I mean by that, there is a realization that this life is not what it's all about. Paul said, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. He said our light affliction, which is but for a moment. You know, we, we, we go through things. And it doesn't seem like light affliction. It seems pretty heavy. And it doesn't seem like it's just a moment. It seems like it lasts. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Paul said, but wait, if I look at this from an eternal perspective, my light affliction, which is just for a moment works for me a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 
Meaning, if I can suffer a little while, the writer said, then the Lord is able to bring something about in my life that that will last for all eternity. And so when we begin to get that eternal perspective, then things like joy begin to characterize our lives. Even when life is difficult, we can have joy. Why? Because I know it's only a little while. And God is at work in my life. I can take Romans 8.28 and I can say, I know that all things work together for good. I don't know how. I can't figure it out. But my faith is not in what I feel in my humanity. My human nature is not what is responding. But I know that God is at work and that what he is accomplishing in me is not going to last for a few minutes or a few days or a few years. But it is going to be an eternal thing that God is at work in my life. And happiness is not joy. Happiness is tied to circumstance. But joy is something that God gives to us when we get more of an eternal perspective and we begin to see things through the lens of eternity, even in great difficulty. I love Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly or stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. What is it that makes you tick? What is it that gets you excited? The psalmist said, blessed is the man that delights in the law of the Lord. Now, you know what he said? He said, he, that man that delights in the law of the Lord, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. He bringeth forth his fruit, his season, his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. What, what the psalmist paints a picture of there is permanence. When there is a delight in the law of the Lord, there are roots that go way down deep. And the blazing hot summer sun may be out or the raging winds of winter may be blowing, but the tree has roots down deep and it's plugged into a different kind of source. And so he says, regardless of what's going on on the surface, in his season he brings forth his fruit. His leaf doesn't wither. And whatever he does prospers. Why is that? Because there is something that is at work in that man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. I think that's what happens to us when we are filled with the Spirit and we begin to allow that Spirit to work in us. There is a degree of permanence and stability that comes to our lives. The very next verse in Psalm 1 says, The ungodly are not so, but they're like the chaff that the wind drives away. And the picture he paints here is the old picture of when they harvested wheat, they had to thresh it to separate the grain from the chaff. And the grain was heavy, and the chaff was light. And so what they would do is early in the day, late in the day, when the breezes were kind of gentle, they would winnow the wheat. You'd take it, and they would toss it up in the air. And the heavy grain would fall back, but the chaff would just be carried away by the morning or evening breezes. And you just toss it up over and over again and you separate the chaff. He says the righteous man, the man who delights in the law of the Lord, he's permanent. He's like a tree that's rooted deep. But the unrighteous, he's like the chaff. Just the gentlest breeze carries him away. And this is the difference between serving ourselves and allowing the Spirit of God to work in us and to bear that, what did Peter call it, that peaceable fruit of righteousness in our lives. Love, joy, peace. It's not just, peace is not just an absence from drama, although that's meaningful for me. I like that. But there's also an element of peace in our relationship with God. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. We have peace with him. He talks about in Ephesians, he has broken down the middle wall of partition and that was between Jew and Gentile and he's taken them and he's put them together and he's there's a peacefulness that is there that's in the church i think the reason one of the reasons why this is a, an eternal aspect again of the spirit of god at work in our lives because we're recognizing hey you know you may like blue cars and i may like red cars and you you may like Apple Jacks and I may like Cinnamon Crunch. But those kinds of things don't matter. 
Our preferences are not what really matters. What is going to last is the fact that we have been baptized into the body of Christ and we share the same spirit and that that spirit is at work in us and that we're all going to share eternity together and there is a peace that comes from this eternal understanding that is occurring in our lives. And this is why the writer would say, may the peace of God that passes understanding guard your hearts there are things we go through in life. People look at your life and they say, how could you possibly go through that? And the simple answer really is it's just the grace of God. He gave us strength and he carries us through. But I think there is an element when as we mature, we begin to see there is a stability and there is a permanence in the spirit of God in our lives. And difficulties come and difficulties go. But God has a way of supplying our daily needs and carrying us through those rough spots in such a way that a few months down the road we may not even remember. It's a blip on the radar because we're allowing God to be in control. We're allowing that spirit to work in us. Long-suffering. I'm not going to make it through the whole list tonight. But I love, (laughs) I have a love-hate relationship, maybe I should say, with the word long-suffering. I like the word because it's so plain in what it means to suffer long. I just don't like to experience it. You don't like to experience long-suffering. But another way to think of it is patience. And again, it's this eternal perspective, the Spirit of God working in us. And we know, hey, God is working all these things out. You know, one of the greatest, one of the greatest things for the believer is to realize I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to defend my reputation. Now, I'm not talking about being arrogant and callous and all those things. If I'm serving God, I'm submitted to God's will, I'm doing what's right, he's going to fight my battles for me. And and if I try to fight for myself, all I'm going to do, I'm going to frustrate myself, I'm going to make, people are going to misunderstand. I just let all of that go and let God take care of that. Let the Lord handle those things. And we begin to realize that's only a temporary thing. It's really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. What really matters is what God thinks of me. That's the thing that's going to matter for eternity. I was convicted a few years ago when I realized, you know, impatience, and this is an area for me, but impatience is an expression of selfishness. Because impatience means I want it the way I want it, and I want it right now that way. And either circumstances conspired to keep it from being the way I want it right now, or you did something that kept me from having what I wanted right now. And that's when we get impatient. Think about it. You're in traffic, you get impatient. Why are you impatient? Because all these people are keeping you from getting where you need to go. It's an expression of selfishness. And that's why patience becomes a facet of this fruit of the Spirit that is at work in our lives. When we can recognize, you know what? It's not about my desires for the moment. This is a long-term thing. And I can, I can suffer through perceived wrongs and I can put my rights aside and I can suffer loss because the big picture is if I can reach somebody and I can help them to be saved and I can redeem a family member or I can save a lost soul, a lost loved one, if I can do something, I can suffer through some difficulties if I have a long-term and eternal view. And this is the expression as these This fruit of the Spirit begins to mature in our lives. Um, Long-suffering, gentleness, just being kind. Meekness. The tendency in our world is to confound meekness and weakness. Meekness is weakness, but that's really not true. Meekness really is strength that is disciplined. And the Lord is not asking us to be weak. He's asking us to apply our strength in the appropriate time and in the appropriate way. And so much of what we see in our world as expressions of wrath and anger, these are people who have strength, but they're using it 
for their own selfish purposes, for their own selfish reasons, to gratify themselves, to show that they are right. Might makes right, and it's an expression of my strength for me. But meekness says, I'll be submitted to the will of God, and I'll be strong in the areas where I need to be strong, and I will defer and not exercise my strength in situations where my strength should not be exercised. And temperance is this idea of having boundaries in our lives. Temperance, it's kind of interesting to me that it brings up the end of the list because it ties everything together. When we're reading through the list of the works of the flesh, the characteristic of that to me seems to be unrestrained, humanity unbound, humanity unleashed. And yet the fruit of the Spirit is that there is a temperance and there is a a boundary within which we operate and function. So the question tonight is how do we get to a point where these things characterize our lives, where our focus is not on me and mine and what it can do for me and my reputation and short-term and, and uh, immediate gratification, but how, how do I grow? How do I mature to a point where these, this fruit of the Spirit, these facets of the fruit of the Spirit, how do they characterize my life? How do I ever get to that point? That's really what we're going to look at next week, but I'll tell you, I'll tell you this. I think it, it amounts to this. It's somebody said, if there are, how do you tell if there's two dogs in a fight and they seem to be evenly matched? How do you know which one's going to win? Well, the one that you feed is the one that wins. The dog that you give the strength to is the dog that's going to win the fight. And in a measure, we have two natures inside of us at war with each other. And, Our humanity says, if you will just relieve this desire that I have, if you will just succumb to this temptation, then I'll never ask you again. That's what our flesh says, right? If How many have said after Thanksgiving meal, I believe I could fast for seven days. But about three or four hours, people are rummaging around the kitchen trying to make a sandwich. There is something about our humanity that is never satisfied. And this is true of all of our appetites. And the more that you satisfy your appetites, your your humanity, your fleshly appetites, the stronger those appetites get. It doesn't seem to make sense in some way. You would think, well, won't they be satisfied? No, they are strengthened and they require more and more. And really the only way to weaken those appetites is to deny them and to put them aside and to resist temptation. Similarly, though, blessed are they that hunger after hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. If we feed our spiritual man, if we feed the spirit of God that has been put into us, that nature will become strong and it will overtake over time our humanity and our human nature. And that we know we will never get to the point where our humanity is completely put down and put under. But if we continue to feed the spirit of God that is within us, its strength will help us overcome. You've probably had that experience. Maybe before you knew the Lord, there was something you struggled with. You knew it wasn't right. You knew it was an attitude or it was who knows what, but you knew it was destructive. You knew it wasn't right. And you tried in your own will to overcome it. You set boundaries and you said, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to let so-and-so on the job get under my skin or I'm not going to let this, that happen. And you might have been successful for some period of time, maybe 10, 15 minutes. I don't know, maybe two weeks. Maybe you were successful for a while. But ultimately, that old nature kicked in and you were not able to overcome. But once you came to the Lord and you were filled with the Spirit, all of a sudden... And it might have been easy, it might not have been easy. But the Lord has a way of just helping us to overcome those things that we could not overcome on our own. That is the benefit and the fruit of the Spirit of God living in our lives. And we will see that strength manifested as we continue and as we walk with the Lord and we grow with Him. You say, how do you feed that nature? Well, you spend time in communication with the Lord. You spend time in prayer. You spend time in His Word. 
That's where you get clear direction. You can believe everything that's in the word. You don't have to filter it. You just have to figure out what it means and apply it. It's there. It is the bread of life. It's exactly what we have need of. We spend time strengthening the spirit in our lives. We will see the benefit of it. Sometimes you don't realize it. It just kind of happens. And maybe there's a situation at work. And then happens in the morning and after lunch. You think, you remember that thing that happened this morning? Six months ago, I would have come unglued over that. But the Lord has helped me and he's changed attitudes. And this fruit is just kind of naturally growing out of my life. That is our great hope as believers, that we are not bound to the law. If we are led by the Spirit, we are not under the law of sin and death and the flesh in our lives, but we are subject to the law of Christ and of His Spirit, and He gives us the strength to overcome. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? We'll, we'll address in, in some more clarity and detail next week ways in which We can allow the Spirit of the Lord to have its way in us. Paul wrote to the Galatians, and it's in chapter 4 before he gets to this discussion, but he calls them, he says, My little children, verse 19 of chapter 4, My little children, of whom I travail again in birth, until Christ be formed in you. He's using the image that I was there and I founded the church. I prayed with you when you prayed through to the Holy Ghost. But now there is a second kind of spiritual travail that is happening As you are growing, as you're being discipled, and I'm continuing to travail in birth until Christ be formed in you. There is a shaping that happens in our lives, and it helps us. We grow, we mature, and we bear the fruit of the Spirit. What a great hope we have. This is not some... uh, Christianity is different from every religion in the world that I know of. There's not some ritual that we go through to try to obtain grace and favor with God, but he has freely given it to us and he has given us his nature into our hearts and into our lives to overcome our nature. There's no other, there's no other religion in the world that makes such an audacious claim that we have received a piece or a part of the eternal spirit of God. And it, it is in our lives. And if we will allow it, it will rule and reign in our lives. What a great hope we have tonight. Amen. Why don't we thank the Lord for his word for this time together. Lord, we're so grateful. God, we ask that you would apply these words to our hearts tonight. Inspire us to reach, God, for what you have for us. Not not that people would think of us as great or as holy, but that our relationship with you would be pure and that your spirit would have its perfect work in us and that the fruit of the Spirit of God would naturally be characteristic of our lives and it would come out of relationship with you. What a great hope we have tonight. So thankful, Lord, for all that you've done. Trust that you will apply these words to our heart, that you will go with us and bring us back safely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord bless you. Thank you tonight for being with us.